nature. There are so many, many petroglyphs and various things around here that indicate the story in Parowan is so clearly that of Israel coming from Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth down to Moses and the deliverance from the Promised Land. There's so much. But this place was so important to the peoples of the world that on all continents, I think I could say that, I'm not sure every continent, but all but possibly one, and probably that one has them too, have pyramids laid out in the exact same configuration as these three on this hill. It must have been very important to somebody for some reason that they would all look back to it. And some of those pyramids, I did not mention it yesterday, but it's in the book written by the guy that discovered the ones in Bosnia, are set up in such a way, the latitudinally, latitudinally and longitudinally, they are lined up with each other from continent to continent. It is incredible how that has been put together. And it had a superior knowledge of geometry, of all kinds of math, uh, knowledge of the shape of the world and where the latitudes and longitudes were at the time those were built. They all have calendars in them that will show you automatically when the equinoxes are. There was a great deal of high intelligence that went into building the pyramids of the world. And they are configured just like these three cones. So you may not be convinced yet. I don't have all the answers yet. But when I hear of King All-Glorious come, and I look, and I think this may be where he returns, and that may even be the hill that splits in two, it gives me chills and to be even thought of, to be included in such a glorious work of God as a mere human being is almost more than I can comprehend. It, it just is. But God called us, brethren. He gave us the knowledge of His truth. And He's here given us some insights that very few have, but that the world will come to know. And they will hate this place if it's the true place. Wherever the true place is, they're going to hate it. And they'll hate us. And that's perfectly okay. Because if we please God, we can't please man. And even Christ himself, King all-glorious, will not be able to please hardly any people on the face of the earth at first. And I'll quote Zechariah 14, where after he returns and splits the Mount of Olives and puts down all rebellion and all peoples come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem, there will be some who will not. He says if Mitzrayim, and I don't think he means necessarily just the people of that uh, tribe or race, but I think it's referring to Egypt or Mitzrayim as a type of sin. Peoples from all over the world, perhaps. That's just an example. Do not come, they will receive no rain. Which might seem pretty harsh on a bunch of people who've just gone through the tribulation, the seven last plagues, and are already destitute, and you'd think humbled but they will not be truly humbled yet. And what was said this morning about us being teachers is certainly valid. We need to be good teachers. We need to be well-informed teachers. We'll have a year with Christ at honeymoon to learn our jobs and learn how to perform them. But I'll tell you what, our experience here on this earth is going to be invaluable. We have lived human nature. We have lived as humans. 
And our Father, and the one who became his Son, felt it important that Christ himself come to this earth and live under the same conditions we live in and be able to do it without sin, something no one else has ever begun to even come close to accomplishing. But it says he learned from the things he suffered. He learned what human beings go through in a very real and personal sense. And life is not easy for humans. I don't think that's a revelation. It is difficult. We can love one another, we can enjoy one another, and yet then we have trouble getting along with one another, and we have trouble getting along with ourselves. And we have trouble getting along with God. Our nature is adverse to God, as we well know. And we need to understand that those people in the millennium who lived through will still have human nature. Satan will be bound, and that will take a great deal of the burden off. But they still will have their human selves to live with. And we will have had all this experience that we're going through right now to be able to have wisdom, experience, and understanding of what they've gone through so that we might help them succeed and become God in their time. But the Bible record is very clear that they will be rebellious at first, some of them at least, and will have to be there. As Isaiah thirty twenty one says, uh, They'll see their teachers. They start to do wrong, we'll tap them on the back and say, Hey, don't do that, do this. Do you think they will like that? If they wanted to do something and they were about to do it, and you tap them on the shoulder and say, Hey, wait just a minute. Now how are we? How are we? We don't like anybody to tell us what to do, do we? Not as human beings, we just don't. And right now, if you were headed out here about to do something wrong and one of the others here in the congregation walked up behind you and tapped you on the shoulder and said, Hey, don't do that, we would be offended, wouldn't we? We just don't like to be told what to do. And when King of Kings, Lord of Lords returns and tells people what to do, they will not like it, even from him. So it's going to take some adjustment. It's going to take a little while to get things under control the way they ought to be. They'll disrespect Christ himself and God the Father just like they do now. And they'll have to learn. Now the tribulation and the last plagues are... A good start on learning that lesson. But then what about all those billions that come up on the day that this represents? They've estimated maybe, as we've said before, 60 billion people have lived since Adam and Eve. I, I rather think that might be a very small and very conservative estimate. I don't know what all it's based on, but... We've got one-sixth of that many living on earth right now. Nearly seven billion. Wow. How many lived before the flood? They started having kids at about age 30 to 100, somewhere right in there. Nobody died unless somebody killed them. They lived, most of them, over 900 years, and most of the people that were born from Adam and Eve on down, were still alive and died in the flood. There must have been billions and billions of people. You know, as fast as people die today, um, they weren't dying that way then. They had good food. They didn't have any pollution. They had no disease. They had become very violent, and they started killing each other. But other than that, uh, there, there wasn't much to die of. You didn't die of old age. He just kept on. So how many were there? I have no idea. But there were, have been a lot of people. 
There's just been a lot of people. Let's go to Revelation 20. I'm going to try to make this fairly short this afternoon. Uh, we've been sitting a lot for the last eight days, and those chairs were getting hard this morning, so I doubt if they've softened up a whole lot by this afternoon. Uh, here is a very wonderful moment to consider in Revelation 20 when Christ comes and lays hold on that dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So there is going to be a significant upgrade for the people, that they might have a chance to attain salvation without Satan around. If you want to think of it that way, it seems a little unfair that they can attain salvation without having to fight the devil. We fight him daily and his influences, and it's very difficult on top of our human nature. On the other hand, we have such a much higher and such a greater reward that if we survive and make it into the kingdom of God, the extra fight will have been worth it. Anyway, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Emmanuel and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So they are in the first resurrection, and they're there to help and abet and strengthen and teach and guide and lead people and help them to salvation. It's been very difficult for us to attain to salvation, but we ought to be well equipped to help others by then. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished, this is the first resurrection. So, the first resurrection, he's saying, is those who went through what we're going through. And the rest of them did not live till that thousand years was over. It's, it's worded a little bit awkwardly in that sense. It almost sounds like the, they don't, aren't resurrected till years are finished. But the first resurrection we know from other scriptures obviously comes uh, at the beginning of the millennium, or a year before it. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So that explains that it is the resurrection, the first one, that uh, he's referring to up there, and no one else is resurrected at that time. Only those who live and reign with Christ a thousand years. Very limited. That means that the innumerable multitude of Revelation 7 and 14 is not in the first resurrection. Only the bride of Christ. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. There are those that have pity on the devil and think he's going to somehow be saved. That scripture does not seem to indicate that whatsoever. He won't repent. He's going to be chained for a thousand years and have time to think about this. But he won't change his mind. And as soon as he comes out, he will not have any repentance, whatever, but will have sat there for a thousand years building up more festering hate and vengeance and destruction 
and will unleash it on the poor people on the earth who have never felt his temptations and had to resist them. And he will apparently deceive so many people it will be like the sands of the sea. Maybe hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people. I don't know how many, but the sand of the sea is a lot. It says Israel will be as the sand of the sea at the end of time, and we have close to a billion people probably on earth today who are blood Israelites. So, um, sounds like a lot of people to me. And I saw a great white throne, verse 11, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the book according to their works. Now, past works in the human life before they were resurrected, the, human, the physical life here? No, I think we'll see that here very shortly. It wasn't that. They will be given a period of time to live and to be judged. Judgment is something that takes place over a period of time. Remember, there'll be a lot of babies, maybe have died in the womb. Babies who died a day or two or three years old who will be resurrected. How do you judge them? They haven't lived any life. They don't know good from evil or right from wrong or anything else. So they couldn't be judged on their past life. They have to be judged upon a life given them at that time if they were little, to grow up, to experience life without Satan around again. So small and great, everybody. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and the grave delivered up, and they were judged every man according to their works. So whether they were buried at sea or buried in the earth or wherever, God knows every last one of them. He knows their DNA. He has a record of them. Uh, I'd hate to be his secretary. I guess he has enough of a mind that he can carry all of that in his mind, and he probably doesn't have to have a secretary do it, but on the other hand, it does talk about the book of life and how people are added to that book of life. So maybe he does have an, an actual record uh, written down. And death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there will be a lot of people who are, make, are into the kingdom of God, but there will be some who do not make it. He says that. There are some who believe in universal salvation. That uh, eventually God will keep working this thing out and working it out until everybody's saved. I don't see that in Scripture, really. He does. Christ did say there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, the penalty of sin is death. And if we do not come under repentance and under the blood of Christ, if we hold out and are rebellious and angry and vengeful and uh, disobedient after all that people have been through, then they will be destroyed. Because it would be... It would be a terrible tragedy to have to live in rebellion and anger for eternity. That would not be a bit fun. And that's one of the reasons God made us mortal instead of immortal. The angels were given life everlasting. They were not given what we will be given to be part of the family of God, but they were given life. And... God will not take away what he gave them. Unless they did repent at some point along the line, they're just going to have to be miserable forever. And God is so merciful and loving, he does not want us to be that way. We can be mercifully destroyed so that we don't have to live in torment 
forevermore. I've often said I would hate to live eternally like I am today. Oh, my. I'd hate for anybody to have to live eternally around me the way I am today. So I hope that when our change comes, we will be a lot easier to live with, and it will be a lot easier to live, and I do believe that is the case. But we will have an uplifting spirit instead of a downgrade human nature. Now let's uh, let's see a little bit about what he said here and back it up. Luke 11 is a good one to turn to. Uh, here, about verse, uh, well, 31 really. But here he's talking to uh, the people. It says we're gathered thick together in verse 29 about how an evil generation seeks a sign, but they'll receive nothing other than his death and resurrection, like Jonas came out of the fish after three days. But then he tells them in verse 31, The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Now, they may have been looking down upon the queen of the south, uh, in their minds, thinking she wasn't important, but they're all going to come up in the same resurrection. And she'll have a thing or two to say about what they think about her. <laughs> You're going to meet these people face on. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. The men of Nineveh, remember, were repentant in the, at the time of Jonah. And Christ was speaking to a bunch of rebellious, unconverted people here. And says, and they were Israelites for the most part. He says, the men of, men of Nineveh are going to put you to shame and judge you in the, by what they have to say about you. And shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So he shows that the people from all those di different generations, is the point I was going to make, will come up at the same time and will be in a situation where they can talk to each other and confront one another. And uh, if attitudes are not what they ought to be, the men of men will be able to say to those Israelites, Hey, straighten up, buddy. At least we repented. didn't last long, but at least they did. And you guys were rebellious till the day you died. But it is a general resurrection, of, just as Revelation 20 was describing. Uh, Isaiah 65, I do want to go back there just for a little bit. I think we have seen uh, pretty clearly in past sermons that uh, this is not talking about the great white throne judgment, per se because the teaching in Worldwide was for so many years that there would be no humans in the new heaven and the new earth. We only read about one or two verses back here in Isaiah 65, 17, and 18, and uh, that's where we stopped. And the doctrine was that there would be the millennium, then the great white throne judgment, which would be a hundred years based on uh, verse 20 of Isaiah 65. And that at the end of that hundred years, the earth would be charred like a cinder and all burned up, and there would be new heavens and a new earth, and there would be no human beings there because everybody would either be changed to spirit at that point or be burned up. And that simply is not what the rest of this chapter and the end of chapter 66 say. He says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. And it will create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people, people still there, a joy. Uh, the people will live a hundred years, verse 20, an infant of days, uh, or a sinner, hundred years old, will be judged at that point and die. 
But this is the new heavens and new earth, verse 17. And it's describing it. It says, And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat, for as the days of the trees are the days of my people. Trees live, you know, hundred years. Some of them live thousands of years. My elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal, and their offspring with them. They'll be having babies in that time, having offspring in the new heavens and the new earth. Notice that again in verse 22 of chapter 66. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Eternal, so shall your seed and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. This is the new heavens and new earth. So our doctrine before was clearly wrong. There will be people during the new heavens and the new earth. I'm not going to go through all those scriptures. They're in the sermons on how exclusive is the church and show that the new heavens and the new earth come with the Father and the Son at the beginning of the millennium. And what he's describing here in Isaiah 65 is the millennium. And children being born, their offspring and all flesh coming before God during the millennium. Now, that doesn't mean it could not extend into the great white throne judgment, because there will still flesh be there then, and being judged during that period of time. And they may live, indeed, a hundred years. I don't know that the great white throne judgment is a hundred years. It just talks about how long people will live here in the millennium, the new heavens, new earth, a hundred years. You'll be given a hundred years instead of seventy, or whatever. We'll be building houses and carrying on life. I don't know of anything in the Bible or anywhere I can think of where it says the day is is a hundred years. It says a day is a year in different places. It also says a day is is a thousand years. So, is the great white throne judgment or the last great day another thousand years? I don't know. Uh, we can only speculate because this is clearly talking about millennial conditions. However, I could see a case being made that if the millennium being a thousand years long and people are given a hundred year period to have their judgment, then God might also grant a hundred years in the great white throne judgment to give them the same amount of time that he's giving people in the millennium. So the millennium goes on for a thousand years, people will live a hundred years. And uh, if he gives those people that, as I said, it might be that he also causes the last great day to itself be a hundred years because everybody gets a running start. You know, all the dead that haven't been in the first resurrection will be resurrected at that time and given their chance. So logic might say they give them the same amount of time that uh, people in the millennium do. But I, that's only my speculation. I can't prove that one way or another. It's just perhaps a logical thing. But everybody gets a chance. I think we could cite John 3.16, where he says, He sent his only begotten Son that everybody might have a chance at eternal life. And also, what was quoted this morning in Second Peter, I'll go back to that again, Second uh, Peter 3.9, I guess it won't hurt us to read it again from a little different standpoint. Uh, I know you're back there. Well, you've probably already found it and read it and you're moving on back by me. Second uh, Peter 3, verse 9. But the Eternal is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, 
but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His desire, his wish, his state of mind, his approach, is that everybody make it. He would love for that to happen. Sometimes we might get down on ourselves a little bit and think, you know, why bother? Why fight it? I'm tired. I'm weary. I can't go on. It's too much. God must not love me. God must not love any of us, you know, to let us live on and on and on in this end time age the way things are. No, that is not his attitude. It might become our attitude at times of discouragement or frustration or whatever, but it's not his attitude. He wants everybody in this room to be in his kingdom, man, woman, and child. You children may not be converted and be in the first resurrection. You might live through the millennium in a place of safety and, and have a chance to live in the millennium and have children and family and, and all those things that we talk about in the millennium and the new heavens and new earth. But you will have a chance at salvation, whether now or then. And if many in the church even die as children in the tribulation, uh, they would come up in this time, the last great day, the great white throne judgment, and have probably at least a hundred years to live and have a chance at salvation as well. So God is going to give us all a shot at it. Everybody gets a chance. And, and he has a very positive attitude toward every one of us. You know, I, I think that when Paul wrote those things about Esau, who just got so bitter, he just could not, would not turn it loose. And yet God was pulling for Esau. He didn't have a bad attitude toward him. He wanted him to repent. He wanted him to change his attitude. But sometimes we can let things get so entrenched that we just won't turn loose of them, and boy, we can be in trouble. I don't know what it'll take. God may put us through a lot to, to get us to the point of salvation. And it's too bad. But look what the world has to go through. The tribulation, the last plagues, death, and starvation, and oh, it's just, I'm not going through all those things. This is a glorious day today. But some of the things that are about to come on this earth are so horrible, but that's what it's going to take to even begin to, to cuff them enough that they might be willing to start listening. But we have a great part in that. And our children are here, and sometimes they may feel like, boy, what's in it for me? But God is going to give them an opportunity to be leaders, and they, if we do our part, are going to be protected through all this trouble that is about to come. Says the children, First Corinthians seven, are sanctified by the parent. They're made holy by the parent's conversion and obedience. So if God is protecting us, and I do not believe time and chance happens to converted people. God is very, very involved in our lives. Time and chance happens to them all, Solomon said. But what he wrote was from a human standpoint. The book of Ecclesiastes is not written from a converted standpoint, but from the general run-of-the-mill of human beings. And time and chance does happen to them all. God just stands back and lets things happen for the most part. But with us, he's working with us toward salvation right now. And if things happen, there's something to learn for us, for somebody else, for us as a group, there are always things to learn. God is teaching us. And sometimes we go through trials, troubles, and tribulations. But if we respond properly, if you really want to love your children, brethren, some of you have little bitty children here that probably won't be converted in this age or go on to the millennium. Or if they die in the tribulation, They'll be in that resurrection. But your children are sanctified by your obedience to God. Sanctified means set apart 
for holiness. They are protected by God in a way that the rest of the children on the earth are not protected. What a wonderful blessing and side effect or side blessing that is for our children that they receive the very attention of God because of our obedience. So if you want to prevent your children from going into the tribulation and all the horrors that are coming to be protected in the place of safety, then you need to be accounted worthy to escape to a place of safety, and your children will go with you because they are sanctified by your obedience. A lot of people worry about their children. Well, if you do your part, you don't have to worry about your children. God has said that even one parent causes those children to be sanctified. He says there that if he has a mixed family where one is converted and one not, God only calls one, and I've seen that happen many times, many marriages, where one is called into the church and the other is not. Now, why God does that and how he does it, I don't know. He calls whom he will. And very often he doesn't call a mate. But he says in that chapter that just one converted parent is enough to bring your children under sanctification and protection. That's kind of a neat deal, isn't it? So kids, encourage your parents to obey God. <laughs> it's in your best interest. No, don't be disrespectful in a wrong way. Don't get me wrong. But love your parents and encourage them if you hear them in bad attitude. Daddy, Mommy, I want protection. No. But God does promise it. It is there. So what a wonderful blessing that is. Uh, let's go for a moment to John 7. John 7. Now here Christ was... Uh, oh, wait a minute. Is that the one I want? Oh, I want John 10 first, then, then 7. Let's go to 10. Now here Christ is talking about he is the shepherd, and he calls, verse 3, uh, his sheep by name and leads them out. He knows your names very well. He counts your hair. He probably got your name figured out too. Uh, and he says he is the door of the sheep. Verse 7 and verse 9. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I think Satan would be the thief in this case. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. We, we have trials and troubles in life now. Life can be difficult. It can be discouraging at times. But it isn't always going to be this way. He came that ultimately we might have abundant life, full of joy. And he tells us as soon as we're resurrected in the first resurrection, we'll have no more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more neglect, no more insecurity, no needs. We will only have peace, safety, security, love, kindness, gentleness, all those things that we may have missed in this life will be given back to us abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. He's going to save his own life. Fully on the sheep, I'm out of here. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he is an hireling and cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known of my sheep. So he's speaking of us. As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Well, he actually literally died for us. And he says here, I, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. 
Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So he's referring to the future here. He was calling out some sheep then to begin the early New Testament church out of Israel, and then he added the Gentiles. He showed that intent clear back in the Old Testament when he allowed the Gentiles to come out with Israel and to go into the promised land with Israel. Uh, the Israelites, the Jews, could never quite see that. <laughs> uh, they always despised anyone that wouldn't call them a dog if they weren't blood Israelite. But I think Almighty God showed many times in the Old Testament that He fully intended from the very beginning that all people have a chance and could come into the fold of Christ. And here He's saying and telling them, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. There's other resurrections, there's other opportunities, there are other peoples that will have a chance because it's only going to be one fold with one shepherd and he died for all men around the earth, not just Israel. So nobody should be puffed up of their lineage. It doesn't matter who you are, you will have a chance at salvation. Even if you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a self-righteous Jew, you'll have a chance. Let's go to John 7. Now, this was long before Peter had his dream and was shown that no man should be called common or unclean because Peter, sorry to say, was very racially prejudiced. And he didn't want any Gentiles in the church. And when Paul brought up something contrary to that, them's fighting words for Peter. That had to be straightened out. But Christ, long before that, and Peter was there, Paul wasn't yet, but Peter was there when he said this. But he wasn't converted yet, and he wasn't very bright. Now, even after he was converted, he still retained those prejudices, and they had to go away. Verse 37, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. That's what this day is all about. Any man can come. Now, we know from John six forty four that no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him under the present conditions. You don't just call yourself into the church. It is limited right now. He is only calling so many and choosing from them for the first resurrection. But this day pictures, and that's why he preached it on the last great day, a time when young and old, small and great, rich and poor, smart and dumb, will all be resurrected. And any man, every man, is offered salvation. So it is not limited in any sense. He came that all mankind might have an opportunity at salvation. He's very positive about it. And I think that he put his money where his mouth is uh, by not only saying this of this day, but also of allowing those mixed multitudes to come in the past. And he allowed a lot of intermarriage, too, in the Old Testament. I'm coming to see, I think, a little different view on that. The times that he had a problem with it were when they were allowing the God, uh, the gods of the people they were around to pull them away from God. It was a religious matter. He even told them sometimes when they took other nations, other peoples, that they could have the wives and children. Take all you want. He didn't have a problem with that. He told them you could. 
Now, there were times when he told them, don't. I want every man, woman, and child killed for a particular reason. I don't know always what those reasons were. But there are other times when he said, hey, the spoil's yours, the booty's yours, take it. All you want. Um, and then he inculcated all peoples into the church through Paul and then through Peter. And he's done the same thing here in the end time. He's called people from around the world, from all different races and backgrounds and languages and peoples, to be into the church and have an opportunity to be part of the bride of Christ and to be placed somewhere in the 12,000 from each tribe in the 144,000. So it's not blood Gadites or blood Manassites or whatever that have to be called. I think he makes that very clear, and I think I've proved it before. It doesn't matter whether you're Chinese or Bolivian or whatever you might be. When he writes your name in the book of life, he places you within one of those tribes. And he even leaves out the guys that started that tribe. song and speak a new language. But this day is for any man. Any man on earth that has lived will have a chance. Hitler, Mussolini, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, aborted children, everyone will have a chance. What a glorious day this is, the last great day of the feast. And how many people understand it, you know, in the world. I had a call from someone yesterday that I know, uh, and uh, she says, what are you doing? We're keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. What's that? <laughs> so I explained the plan of God in about three minutes. Oh, that sounds interesting. Wasn't convinced or converted, but... Uh, you know, people just don't know all this stuff. They have no clue, no idea. Well, I said I'd make this short, so once in a while I do what I say. That's it for the sermon. Uh, it has been suggested, and I thought it was a great idea, uh, that we have a group picture taken out here, maybe right after services. We've done that some years, and I think this would be a really good year to do it with the background of the, hopefully the hill of Jerusalem behind us. Don't know sure for sure that that's it yet, but we can take a picture and then if it turns out, hey, that's great, we did it on the right spot, and if it doesn't, we'll say, well, nice try. <laughs> now where is it? So we'll get this all sorted out one way or another. But before, uh, before completely closing, I, I do want to thank each and every one of you for your participation and good attitudes and I think it's just been a wonderful feast. It's just, it's just been great. And a lot of work went into getting ready for the feast and getting this tent ready and the restrooms ready and the potties ready and the whatever ready. Food and uh, everything that's gone into making things work and be successful and uh, I know some of you had a little trepidation even about coming out here and camping out in the wilderness, but I think uh, the showers kind of saved our bacon. Yeah, we're still unclean. Uh, it sure was nice to be able to get up every morning and go over and take a hot shower. However brief, uh, it was still nice to do and uh, got the day going right. So I think it's worked out very well, and I think God in heaven has blessed us with just almost wonderful weather all the way through. got a little bit chilly the other morning, but it wasn't that bad. And uh, it's just been so pleasant. And everybody's attitude seems like it's been sunny and pleasant as well. Uh, I got in a bad one mood, I think, for a minute or two the other day. Or did I? I don't know. If I didn't, I probably will. 
but uh, overall, I can say that I, I, I think that God would have been pleased with our attitudes and how we cooperated and how everybody's pitched in and helped and uh, makes my job easy when everybody does their job and maybe does a little extra even beyond that and uh, I think God would smile on that. So we came into this feast hoping we could please God and, and I hope we have. I know we haven't been perfect and we haven't done it perfectly and I even predicted somebody would sin before we even got started. So I waited a few hours before I came up here let somebody get ahead of me. I knew I wouldn't make it long after I got here, so let somebody break the ice. Yeah, just kidding, obviously. But uh, thank you. Or maybe we can meet where? Who are the photographers? Let's see, the sun's back over this way. Maybe we could gather right over here and the sun will be right then, right in your face. But it'll be better for the camera. Now let's take our hymnals once again for this closing hymn. We're going to be turning to page 51. Joyfully sing and praise God and following this, I'd like to call Daryl back up for the closing prayer. Page 51. Thank you. 